Jesus Extreme is what we're on to. When I first saw the title of the sermon for today, Extreme, I thought, ooh, what comes to mind when I think of extreme? First thing that came to my mind was extreme makeover. And somewhere in the back of my mind was a memory of a program I just, you know when you're flicking through the channels and you come across something awful sometimes? Well, this was um, an extreme makeover where people were having many thousands of pounds spent on them to have all manner of things done to make them very beautiful from being very different to that at the start. So they'd have all sorts of plastic surgery, new teeth, new hair, coloured eye, you know, makeup. The works, thousands of pounds, and lo and behold, they come out transformed. Extreme makeover. It reminded me of the closest thing I ever came to a makeover. I, I didn't know whether to tell you about this or not, because I'm slightly embarrassed, but we're all friends, aren't we? So I will tell you as your family. Um, you know those uh, family photograph deals that, pe- that you get sucked into, where you think you're going to get lots of really good professional photographs for your family, and uh, you think they're a really good cost. In fact, they almost pay you to come. And then when you go and see the photographs and you leave and you realise how much you've spent, you realise it was a huge marketing ploy in which you've fallen for hook, line and sinker. Well, it was one of those. And as part of this deal, someone in the family got to go and have some, okay, glamour shots, they were called. Okay, I've said it now. And that was me. So I went along and I had my hair done and my makeup done and I put some nice clothes on and I had these photographs taken in a professional studio. I was quite pleased with the results, I must admit. Took them home, showed Phil. Phil liked them. He framed one and put it on the, lo- put it on the side in the lounge. Still there, actually. Um, and I was quite pleased. So when my friend Sally from a couple of doors ca- um, away came round that day, I thought, oh, I'll show Sally my picture. So I got it, and I put it sort of, you know, bashfully in front of her. I said, look, Sally, this is a photograph I've had. And she looked at it and she said, Heather, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing what they can do with makeup and lights? <laughs> So that's what I thought of when I thought of extreme. Take a look at something else that's extreme. I'm going to show you the opening clips of Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. So the thesis of what I want to bring you this morning is that we're called to live life as a Christian in a way which is much more Mission Impossible than it is middle of the road and the way we tend to play it at the moment. And we do indeed need an extreme makeover if we're willing to take on this mission. You will know, of course, that at the start of every Mission Impossible film, and indeed the series, if those, for those of you who remember the series, at every episode, the challenge for, well, Tom Cruise now, was this, the mission, should you choose to accept it, is... And Jesus says the same to us today. Our mission, if we choose to accept it, is to live life on the edge. Life that requires radical change in ourselves. A life that will be obvious to those around us because of the difference it makes. This is our mission, if we choose to accept it. If we choose to accept it, we need to follow Jesus' example of being extreme 
And I'm going to look at three areas. Jesus was extreme in lots of ways. I could have chosen many. But I'm going to look at three areas this morning in which Jesus took an extreme approach, and so should we if we're going to live a life that's seriously about Jesus. He was extreme on sin. He was extreme about sacrifice. And he was extreme about service. When I'm preparing a sermon, um, I often chat through ideas through, through those people who are close to me. And I was doing that the other day. And I got, just got to the first part. I'd hardly started speaking. And I said, the first bit is, Jesus is extreme about sin. And my friend leapt in. She said, you can't start there. You can't start with sin, Heather. No, you have to start with love. Wow, she made me think, I must admit. So I went away and thought about this some more. But when I looked at the Sermon on the Mount and the verses Phil read earlier, I saw that actually Jesus was right up front about sin. He didn't sort of cosset it away, fluff it up. He was right up front about it. And in these verses in uh, Matthew says, um, anyone who breaks the least of one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and so on. Jesus isn't saying, you needn't worry about sin because I love you. The opposite is true. Jesus is saying, because I love you, you need to deal with sin. Face up to it. Sin messes us up. But is it me? Or are we as a church, or we personally, getting a bit softer on sin? I think that we're losing sight of the fact that sin is against God. It's not only against ourselves or each other. If I thump, thump you, yes, it's a sin against you. But much greater than that, more important than that, is that I have acted against God. For example, David had clearly sinned against Bathsheba and her husband, that he killed in an attempt to cover up his adultery with her. And yet that pales into, signif- into insignificance when, in his mind, when he realises that he'd sinned against God. And in the Psalm 51 we read, Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin messes us up because it messes up our relationship with God. It messes us up. I guess we're still pretty clear on the big sins, aren't we, that they're wrong. We know not many of us are murderers, bank robbers, thieves, not many of us. We're all pretty clear about the big sins. But it's the smaller things, the smaller things that we just kind of get away with that break our relationship with God. So who do we think we're kidding? We're getting a bit fluffy around the edges about sin. Yep. We read in James 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. But we are becoming too friendly with the world, I think. One symptom of this, I think you'll know what I mean if I I talk about what I'm going to call the euphemistic approach to sin. I heard someone at the back say, what's a euphemism? So, I'll tell you. It's uh, when you say something gently, when you really mean something really hard. You know the kind of thing. Um, You may refer to someone as 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 having ample proportions, when we know you mean they're overweight. You may talk about someone as being between jobs, you know, when they haven't got one and they'd really like one. 
We talk about having lost someone. That's a funny one, isn't it? What we mean is they've died. It's a gentle way of saying it. We talk about ethnic cleansing when we really mean murdering people because they've got the wrong colour of their skin. And as an employer, we might talk about letting you go when we really mean there's no room for you here anymore. We refer to the call of nature, or we say someone is virtually challenged, I'm sorry, vertically challenged, meaning they're short, or even follically challenged. For some of you blokes out there, I'm not looking at anyone. Follically challenged means you haven't got much hair. We use them, don't we, all the time. They're kinder, gentler ways of speaking, and they're often useful. But what about when we use them to be gentle with ourselves about the sin in our lives? We may say, for example, oh, it's only harmless fun when we're being unkind to someone at their expense, so being unkind at someone else's expense. If we, are, if we regularly drink too much, we may tell ourselves and others, oh, it's just a little weakness. Or something hidden away, some sort of addiction hidden away, like an addiction to pornography maybe late at night in front of the computer. We may think it's, oh, just a little habit. Nobody knows. We may talk about a white lie. It's not important, is it? Or we say, oh, it's just my nature to worry. So that's all right, isn't it? No, it's not. Or we say, we make it all right by saying, well, it doesn't harm anyone. No one will know. It's harmless. In all these cases, many more, we are dumbing down the facts. It's sin. It damages our relationship with God and it messes us up. Jesus was extreme about sin. No half measures. No euphemisms. He told it straight. And... um, In in Matthew, in the the verses that Phil read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. No gentleness. Let's face it. Let's get rid of it. We're soft on sin because we think it's about ourselves and each other, but it's far more crucially, as I have said, about our relationship with God. So the fact that no one knows about it, or it doesn't hurt anyone, makes no difference at all. It doesn't help us out at all doesn't mean it has to be dealt with any less. So, why is Jesus so extreme about sin? Well, actually, of course, my friend was right. She was right when she said it's about love. It's because he loves us that he's serious about sin in our lives, because sin messes us up. I'm just going to look very quickly at about one, two, three, four, five areas very quickly that, that sin messes, us, messes us up in, the way it affects us so badly. Um, it, affect, it makes us alienate from God. It alienates us from God. It causes spiritual separation from God. We talk a lot, John talked about hearing God speak. If sin is not dealt with in our lives, we don't hear him speak. We don't, we're not in communion with him. We're not growing in him. It causes alienation from God. It alienates us from ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we're keeping hold of our sin, we're not at peace with ourselves. Remember how Adam in the garden um, when he sinned, felt ashamed suddenly and wanted to cover himself up. He could no longer accept himself. He felt uncomfortable. 
And in Isaiah it says, the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest. You know, the guilty conscience kind of thing. It's not a comfortable way to live. Sin alienates us from ourselves. Sin alienates us from each other. We know that sin damages relationships, don't we? And right from the start in Genesis 3, the man said, that woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from this tree and I ate it. He blamed her. We've been blaming each other for sin for years. And I often hear people say, well, you see, if I was in a different relationship, it'd be different. I'd be different. If I was in different circumstances and people were nicer to me, I'd be able to be better. I wouldn't commit this sin. Rubbish. We can't blame other people. We can't blame other people. We have to take responsibility ourselves. Sin alienates us from creation, and that's something I'd like to spend some more time on another day, maybe. Um, That we were built, we were made originally to be in harmony with creation, but we see all around us, don't we, that creation is broken, the world is broken. So we battle with it rather than live in harmony with it. And uh, these, this verse from Genesis says, um, said to, God said to Adam when he'd sinned, you must, not, you must not eat from the tree, and he did. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it. It's all a result of sin. We're alienated from creation because of it. And crucially, of course, finally on this section, we alienated, sin alienates us from life, eternal life. We forfeit eternal life if we are sinful and don't deal with it. And in this verse in Genesis 2, it said, um, you must not eat from the sin of life, of course Adam did. You must not sin. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that was when, because of sin, we lost our right to eternal life without having it dealt with, if we don't get it dealt with. So sin messes us up in every way. That's why Jesus doesn't pull any punches in dealing with it. He says to us, deal with it, root it out. Jesus was extreme about sin. Secondly, Jesus was extreme about sacrifice, that we should live lives that are full of sacrifice. And we're back to the extreme makeover, really, because we can only do this if God changes us inside and makes us able Sometimes we have misread the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We read it as if it says, go into all the world and make converts. But it doesn't say that at all. It says make disciples, people for whom following Jesus will be a way of life. Sometimes I think we've become a bit like insurance salesmen who say, oh, just say this quick prayer accepting Jesus and you'll have eternal life in the bag you're in. We sell that, we're selling short when we do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace, where Jesus is the forgiver, the peace bringer, the friend, but doesn't bring radical change into a life. In other words, some people say the sinner's prayer and forget to change their life. Others realise, though this isn't something, another reaction, some people recognise that some kind of change in lifestyle is needed, but don't really get it. So they try and stick to the rules instead. Modest dress. No alcohol, probably. They attend all the church meetings, do lots of religious things, and they're full of self-congratulation and justification about the good life they lead. 
but they're not really handing their life over to God to say, change me deep within, use me, whatever it takes. It's not about keeping rules. It's about being changed to be like Jesus. So, in Matthew uh, 19, we read... And everyone who, ha- everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times much more and inherit eternal life. We have to choose to take it though, don't we? In truth, we need to give every part of our lives to Jesus, to his control. Let's check through for a moment the compartments of our lives. Is Jesus making a difference in every one of them? What compartments are in your life? Work, leisure, home, school, sport, shopping, holidays, relationships, gardening, marriage, hobbies, church, religious stuff. Check every compartment. Is Jesus making a difference there? He's serious about sacrifice in every bit of our lives. We are all called into ministry. The calling on your life is no less than the calling on mine. For most of us, it will be in the home, in the factory, in the office, in the hospital. And some of you will be called into full-time work in the church. Look out for it. It might be you too. Don't be surprised. Don't discount that possibility too. Many of us, I think, are afraid to trust God with our future because we think he'll make us something, do something that we don't want to do. But look at this in Matthew. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. So many of us think that God will give us something to do that we don't want to do, that's not our desire for our lives, that we that, that will mess us up, but the opposite is true. It may not be easy what God requests of us and requires of us, the mission he sets us, if we're prepared to take it, may not be easy, but we won't improve on it by going our own way. His plans for us resonate with the way we are made, the way we tick, they fulfil our desires. Only when we are fulfilling God's purpose in our lives are we truly fulfilled at our core. It says in Hebrews, as we live like this, we shall be like stars in the universe. By going our own way, we're never going to make it to star quality. We really aren't. What about those desires within us? The things we want. John talked about wrestling with temptation, being, seeing what, how the rich young ruler couldn't give it up. But if we allow him to, God will change the desires of our heart. Look at this in Philippians. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He changes our will. He will fulfill the desires of our heart. But this is our mission if we choose to take it. We may not. We may choose not to. And that's sad because it is possible, I believe, to have a saved soul and a wasted life, or a life that has never really been used in the way that God had planned, because we didn't take up the mission, because we didn't feel equipped or able. It is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. 
God gives us a mission. We may choose not to accept it. I found this quote from Soren Kierkegaard helpful. If Jesus had said, follow me, and you will have comfort, wealth, and possessions beyond the dreams of avarice, then we would have no need for commentaries by learned professors. We would say, I understand full well what that means. I'll follow, and where do we collect the money? But because Jesus actually says, take up your cross and follow me, we suddenly find that we need commentaries and professors of Bible studies to tell us that Jesus didn't really mean, or even say, take up your cross. And if he did, he certainly didn't mean me. Finally, briefly, Jesus, said, Jesus was extreme about sacrifice. At the heart of the call to service is the call to sacrifice. And Jesus' heart for service was most clearly demonstrated when he washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus, God himself, bent down and washed dirty feet and dried them with a towel he had wrapped round his waist. These may have been his friends, but every one of them was going to desert him within the next 24 hours. He washed the feet of all of his disciples, including Judas, who was going to betray him most brutally. His heart was to serve, and ours must be too if we're serious about following him. It's tough stuff. Here in Mark, where it says, who wants to be first should be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to, serve, did not come to be served, but to serve. It's tough, but it's where true fulfilment lies, and it's key to our mission if we choose to accept it. Jackie Pullinger is a, an example of a life that was given in service to others, is given in service to others. She gave up everything to work with drug addicts and, and drug dealers in Hong Kong. She lived in a place full of violence and drugs and danger, and she shared Jesus there with many people in desperate situations. She saw many miracles and lives changed. Libby Purvis um, interviewed her about the sacrifice she had made, and she said this, no sacrifice, that's dumb. I've had more fun than most people. People are always telling me to take it easy or I'll burn out. But a couple of years later, it always turns out that they've burned themselves out and I haven't. The Bible doesn't say anything about looking after yourself, does it? And of course, the ultimate act of service was that which Jesus performed on the cross for us, where he chose to deal with our sin by dying, by dying that gruesome death for us. Service at the extreme. So in conclusion, Jesus was extreme on sin, and we need to be too. He was extreme on sacrifice, he said the way that we lived need to be sacrificial. We need to give up, do stuff that we'd never even dreamed of when he calls us to do it. An extreme on service, serving others. 
He lived life on the edge, standing up against wrongs in society, challenging authorities, living out what he believed. No excuses. And for us to, to live like that seems like mission impossible. Your mission, if you accept it, is to turn your back on sin, to turn our back on sin, to sacrifice every part of our life to his call and to serve others, whatever it takes. God has built us for mission impossible feats, but so often we settle for Sunday school. We settle for middle of the road. And just as I finish, there's one one more important point I want to make. If mission impossible, life on the edge, seems too much to ask, remember that God doesn't call people who are equipped or qualified for the mission he sets. He calls people who are willing Remember we said at the start, it's about your desire. If you're willing to take on this mission, to accept this mission, he will equip you. He will equip you. Let's pray. Father God, we're middle-of-the-road people. Often, forgive us for that. Forgive us for taking the easy way. We all do it sometimes. We all, and we all use euphemisms to cover over our sin to make us feel better. Father, give us the strength to get a grip of sin in our lives, to address it, to wrestle with it, to get rid of it with your help, to bring it to your cross. Each one of us shut you out of compartments in our lives. Father, break into those compartments of our lives. Where you are, we keep you out. Break in, move in, change us in every aspect of our life, we pray. Make us able to say yes to this mission you set us and teach us how to serve others. Father God, teach us how to live a life of service. When we hear you say to us, this is your mission, help us to choose to accept it and live life on the edge and not in the middle of the road. Amen.